Pakistan. Imran Khan is no longer prime minister. Journalists remain beholden to who really runs the country, the military. India, hatred and violence against Muslims is getting worse. The prime minister's silence says more than words ever could. And Bangladesh, where the government uses lawfare against reporters and voices of dissent. Journalism across South Asia is under the gun. When Pakistan's now former Prime Minister Imran Khan was removed from his job a couple of weeks ago, no one expected him to go quietly. Ever since losing a parliamentary no-confidence vote, Khan and his supporters have been holding political rallies and conducting an aggressive, at times ugly, social media campaign. Khan maintains that his defeat wasn't over his style of governance or the runaway inflation Pakistani consumers are now facing. It is a byproduct of American interference in Pakistani politics. However, there's a lack of evidence for that, and most in the Pakistani media aren't buying it. Some of them still hold a grudge against Khan, who campaigned in support of press freedom, then cracked down on journalism, as did his allies in the country's military. In Pakistan, politicians come and go. It is the men in uniform who hold power. They are no friends of the Fourth Estate, and they're not going anywhere. Our starting point this week is the capital, Islamabad. In the aftermath of his sudden ouster from office, Imran Khan is on a full-spectrum media offensive. The one-time cricketer turned politician and now ex-prime minister is holding rallies for the faithful and live-streaming speeches for the youthful, trying to forge a path back into power. Whatever the platform, the self-styled savior of Pakistan delivers the same message, that traitors in the political class and media have betrayed him through a conspiracy authored somewhere, somehow, in Washington. Imran Khan and his uh, colleagues, they are uh, trying to uh, use an anti-American narrative to get sympathies uh, from the people of Pakistan and uh, the most of his supporters are coming to his rallies uh, in big numbers. For the time being, this uh, anti-American narrative is working, but with the passage of time, I don't think that uh, this narrative will survive. He's selling a conspiracy theory that a U.S. Uh, funded and uh, uh, conspiracy has uh, removed him from his office. Previously, uh, we have experienced only uh, the religion card uh, and uh, the corruption card against the opponents, but this is the first time uh, somebody uh, using a card of a traitor, which he labeled all the politicians of the mainstream political parties. They're calling all of those people, including journalists and political opponents, traitors. And the different political tactics that they're using also includes slamming the Pakistani military establishment, slamming the Pakistani judiciary as well, and saying that they're essentially complicit in a conspiracy against Imran Khan is uh, quite dangerous because uh, Imran Khan party's supporters have showed up outside the houses of some of the leading journalists in the country. Among those targeted were two prominent journalists on Pakistani news channels, Hamid Mir of Geo News and Asma Shirazi of Aj News. 
Both are part of a media industry that prior to the 2018 election welcomed Imran Khan's promise to transform Pakistani politics and support press freedom. That promise did not age well. Khan eventually turned on journalists, many of those who crossed red lines, either by criticizing the government or the military that had backed Khan, found themselves censored, scapegoated, and in some cases targeted. What goes around, comes around. And now, apart from the talking heads at the news channel ARY, Khan finds himself with few allies on the Pakistani airwaves. Immediately after becoming Prime Minister, he uh, called me and some of my colleagues and he asked us that, please don't criticize me for six months. I said, okay, let's give him a chance. When six months passed, I started criticizing his bad governance. And he got angry and he issued orders to censor my shows, to stop my interviews with the opposition leaders. So slowly and gradually we realized that Imran Khan is uh, becoming an autocrat. He is becoming a dictator. PTI has uh, the first political party who used uh, social media very systematically. They have uh, dedicated social media cells in every city. There are many uh, ministers of the PTI government uh, who are targeting journalists and calling them part of the foreign conspiracy uh, in toppling the PTI government. We have to face a big social media campaign of like traitor, infidel and uh, foreign agent, foreign funded. It, it uh, destroys your life. The most significant threat journalists face is not from Imran Khan or his supporters. It is Pakistan's military and its hold on political power, which started a decade after the country gained its independence in 1947. Pakistan has lived through four periods of military rule, a total of 33 years when the generals were front and center. Even under quote-unquote democratic rule, the men in uniforms have held power behind the scenes. When Imran Khan was elected in 2018, he had the military's backing, until he came into conflict with the head of the army, Kamer Javed Bajwa over who should run Pakistan's intelligence service, the ISI. That disagreement created a rift that Khan's political opponents exploited. They had plenty of reasons to want him gone, from his authoritarian tendencies to rampant inflation. And with a vote of no confidence, they removed him. The military has ruled over Pakistan for most of 20, uh, 70 years, so indirectly or directly, um, whether it's through direct military dictators or whether it is behind the scenes uh, targeting journalists as well. General Ziaul Haq in the 80s, who you know lashed journalists in public, but then we also had a flip side, which was General Musharraf, who presented himself as a benign dictator um, and, and actually opened and liberalized the media, but that's because he wanted to counter Indian propaganda. So. Uh, this sort of interference has been documented, but people are obviously afraid to talk about it because 
you're afraid of losing either your job, you're afraid of um, being, you know, picked up, you're afraid of um, being attacked. With the PTI removed from office, Imran Khan is now trying to force a quick election. But the media outlets he held sway over no longer have to do his bidding. The Pakistani military, though, remains a shadowy force behind the scenes that news organizations must contend with. Reporting on corruption in its ranks or the counterinsurgency campaigns in Balochistan and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa has resulted in journalists getting fired, disappearing, and being tortured. That is the primary challenge facing anyone covering politics in Pakistan. How to hold power to account when that power is unelected and is exercised out of the public view, beyond the reach of news cameras. The tricks of the trade include using coded language, euphemisms, uniquely Pakistani, that news consumers there learned to decipher long ago. Some of these terminologies are terms like Khalai Makhluk. Now this term, which basically means an alien, is widely used to refer to the intelligence agencies. Then there are terminologies like quote-unquote boys, published in leading dailies to refer to the generals. There is a term called a visit to the agricultural department or a, a visit of a tourism site to refer to enforced disappearances or arbitrary detentions. Another way to refer to the military or intelligence is, is um, powerful circles. Another way to refer to them would be invisible forces. You know, so there's, there's uh, many creative ways. In the 80s, some uh, magazines and newspapers used to blank out pages where they were asked to issue a press release. So I think this kind of terminology, this kind of resistance, it's always been there within Pakistani society. This is the worst period for Pakistani journalists and uh, Pakistani media. Like in the past, in the 80s, uh, there was a military dictator, but still, we cannot even report it, we cannot even publish blank pages or leave screen blank. We even cannot report this that we are getting censored. Elsewhere on the subcontinent, in India, the past few weeks have produced a surge in hate speech and violence against Muslims there. Tarek Nafa is here with the details. What Indians have been witnessing has really alarmed observers and activists. Incidents of communal violence flared up during celebrations of Hindu festivals, religious processions where people waved swords and guns and chanted slogans insulting Muslims. In several BJP-ruled states, the party that holds power nationally, those processions led to attacks on Muslim neighborhoods. The authorities then went in and demolished the homes and shops of those they said were responsible, who were for the most part Muslims. The state governments say the buildings demolished were illegal, unauthorized. 
That's a line that went unquestioned by much of India's media, leading to bizarre moments on TV like this one. India's Muslims are a minority, but we're talking about more than 200 million people, a population larger than most Muslim countries. Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government is accused of pushing a divisive Hindu nationalist agenda that has emboldened his supporters. Religious leaders and preachers are also driving hatred against Muslims. Here's just one example from this past week. We've also seen religious figures demanding that Muslim homes be destroyed. It's part of a celebratory culture of violence in India, where hate speech and attacks on Muslims are filmed and then circulated on social media. The Prime Minister's silence on all this prompted 13 opposition parties to come out this week and say Modi's failure to speak out against those who incite and propagate bigotry is, quote, testimony to the fact that they enjoy the luxury of official patronage. Thanks, Tarek. If you were to list the nations of South Asia, and there are eight of them, in order of their press freedom rankings, Bangladesh is at the bottom of that table, lower than Afghanistan. The country's legal system includes laws that have been weaponized against those who dare to express political dissent against the government of Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina or anyone who questions the basic tenets of Islam, the religion of nearly 90% of Bangladeshis. One of those laws, the Digital Security Act, the DSA, has only been on the books for four years, but more than 1,500 people have already been charged under it. The DSA is written in a way that is tailor-made for abuse. Politicians have been jailed, writers have died in prison while awaiting trial, and governmental promises to reform the law have come to nothing. The Listening Post's Minakshi Ravi now on Bangladesh's Digital Security Act and the toxic effect it has on journalism and politics there. Mushtaq Ahmed, a writer. Abbas Ali, mayor of a municipality in the Midwest of Bangladesh. Abu Zaman, a farmer who has never been online. His digital footprint is so negligible that what you're seeing isn't even his photo. It's a stock image of a farmer in Bangladesh. All three men were charged under the Digital Security Act, the DSA. Abu Zaman's alleged crime was aiding and abetting the publication of false information about someone else in his village. The charges against Mayor Abbas Ali were for comments he made about plans for a mural of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, Bangladesh's founder and the father of current Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina. The mayor said the mural would be inappropriate according to Islam, which forbids idolizing people. Mushtaq Ahmed was arrested in May 2020. He'd posted messages on Facebook criticizing the Hasina government's handling of the COVID pandemic. Ahmed was held without trial for nine months, denied bail six times, and eventually died in jail. These three were among the more than 1,500 cases filed under the DSA. I've seen 16, 17-year-olds taken off to jail because they posted a Facebook status that angered someone's religious sentiment 
or somehow the police thought that if people see this Facebook status, that then perhaps there might be some bickering and just preemptively they take the, the teenager off to jail. We've seen situations where a folk singer is singing about God and her relationship with God and someone sitting in his drawing room listens to the song on, on YouTube and does not like the song and files a case against her. The Digital Security Act has been created in such a way, in such a stringent way, that the use of it is basically misused. When we, we challenge a legality of the law, what are the standards we need to be thinking of? It is our constitution. Article 26 of the Constitution clearly says the state shall not make any law inconsistent with the fundamental rights of the citizens of the country. If they make any such law, that will be considered void. Far from being void, the Digital Security Act, passed in 2018, has doubled down on the colonial-era Official Secrets Act and incorporates language from the country's Information and Communication Technology Act sections the government admitted were abusive and promised to repeal. The law punishes negative propaganda with up to 14 years in prison. It's a vice clamped around all kinds of expression in Bangladesh, especially political criticism and journalism. Many in Bangladesh saw the DSA coming. Three years before it was passed, Kanak Sarwar, a senior reporter with the Ekushe TV channel, was arrested for the crime of broadcasting a speech by an opposition politician. I was in jail in 2015 uh, in a charge of sedition. So that time I see many people inside the jail. Uh, they are imprisoned, they are convicted for uh, their posts in Facebook. People who just click on a like button. So uh, when I'm getting out from jail, uh, this work uh, in my mind that maybe if my friends and relatives are connected with me, maybe they will be uh, in trouble. So, uh, so I, I suggest my friends, my colleagues, my family members do not communicate with me, give, um, block me in the Facebook or unfriend in the, the Facebook. Actually, this is not my desire or my demand. This is the demand of time. Because in Bangladesh, there is no uh, freedom of speech. I have to suggest this. In 2016, after getting out of jail, Sarwar fled Bangladesh for New York, where he now hosts a YouTube channel that pulls no punches on Sheikh Hasina and Bangladeshi politics. He left behind family members who have been targeted. In October of 2021, his sister, Nusrat Shahreen Raka, was arrested and jailed for five months, charged under the DSA with spreading anti-state propaganda on social media. She says she was framed that a fake Facebook account had been created with her name on it. The government is very, very miffed about Kanak Sarwar because of his criticisms of the government. And since he's not in, in town, the next best thing that they could do is target his sister. With the DSA, any person who speaks up against authority, their family members are going to be in an equal amount of danger as them. In the hearing, the judge mentioned that Nusrat was accused in the DSA case because of her journalist brother, Konak Sarwar. This is the findings of a high court judge. And this is clear that she is arrested just to stop my voice, just as a hostess. 
if you go through my sister's case, you will see there is no news analysis, there is no editorial. Just due to their fear that maybe, maybe if I write about this subject, I will be arrested. In October last year, Bangladesh's Justice Minister, Anisul Haq, was interviewed by Al Jazeera. He admitted the DSA had been misused and abused and said the government was taking complaints about the law seriously. We are uh, having a dialogue with the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights Office in Geneva uh, so that we can understand the best practices all over the world and we would like to stop uh, the misuse and the abuse of this law. The New York-based NGO Human Rights Watch was unconvinced. Two months after that interview and similar statements made by the minister, it said, the ruling Awami League government has made clear it has no intention of addressing a pattern of grave abuses. Authorities used the Digital Security Act to harass and indefinitely detain journalists, activists, and others critical of the government. The law's vague wording and indiscriminate use has meant that many Bangladeshis are now prone to self-censoring. And the list of troublesome topics is long. Just to give you an idea of what actually can get you into trouble under this particular law, is like if you comment on our liberation war, then you will be in, in, in trouble. If you spread any religious opinion, that can get you into trouble straight away. Even children got arrested. If you talk about corruption of any political persons, any government officials basically, that can get you into trouble. You cannot establish a counter-narrative onto what you are being told by the ruling party. That is how it works. Here's the strangest thing about the law. You don't actually need to be a direct victim of the law. So for example, you post a Facebook status that my friend thinks that this is extremely humiliating for me and my friend can, can file a case against you even though my friend is not even a direct victim so the worst case scenario for this would be where you're criticizing a minister on social media which is a right for for people in a democratic country to be able to critique the the instruments of the state and someone would perhaps say that something i've posted is humiliating for the prime minister or for that minister and file a case against me. There's been a noticeable reduction in the number of DSA cases this year. However, no one in Bangladesh is sighing with relief just yet. In February, the government posted new draft regulations pertaining to digital, social media and OTT platforms, video streaming sites like Netflix. An open letter from international media and human rights organizations called the draft regulations devoid of adequate judicial oversight, clarity, and due process, saying they will gut an online space that's already severely restricted. Dhaka has announced it will finalize the regulations by May. The ruling Awami League has one eye on elections coming up next year, and Bangladeshis face the prospect of an even harsher clampdown, worse than under the DSA, on the kinds of voices the government does not want heard. And finally, our fourth South Asian stop this week is the island nation of Sri Lanka, which has been experiencing an economic crisis with political ramifications. Protests against soaring fuel prices, power blackouts, and food shortages have triggered a nationwide uprising. 
demonstrators are demanding the resignation of President Gotabe Rajapaksa, known as Gota. We're leaving you now with some recommendations, the news outlets, and individuals online who can keep you informed about what is happening in the country. Starting with the hashtag GoHomeGota, it's the first stop for activists and Sri Lankans who want to get involved. Other voices we're tracking on Twitter, the human rights lawyer and activist Ambika Satkunanathan. She keeps a close eye on police brutality against protesters and journalists. There's also the analyst and researcher Sanjana Hatatua, as well as the editor-in-chief of Roar LK, Roel Raymond. Artists and illustrators also play an important role in Sri Lanka's digital resistance. We follow the work of the prolific political cartoonist Awanta Artigala. Over on Instagram, these graphic designers are also worth checking out. Lots of Sri Lankans follow the digital site Newswire on Twitter, which has been collating videos of protests and state violence from around the country. For English readers, the civic journalism news site Groundviews provides commentary and analysis on a range of topics. And we'll be keeping a close eye on the Sri Lankan government's attempts to restrict the flow of information. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.